0: This is Ozarks at Large for Wednesday, March twenty second, twenty twenty three. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellams. This is ninety one point three KUAF, a listener supported service of the School of Journalism
1: and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas.
0: Later on the program, a new lecture series at the University of Arkansas is dedicated to the history of science. The inaugural talk was delivered by David Kaiser, a professor of physics at MIT. He came by the Carver Center for Public Radio during his time on campus.
1: Before that, earlier this year, a leak circulated that the University of Arkansas system was looking to buy the online for-profit University of Phoenix. The school is widely known and has nearly one million alumni, as well as a host of legal and financial troubles. Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth has
2: more. Like a lot of things, trying to find a better job can be frustrating. So at University of Phoenix, we're working with a growing list of almost 2,000 corporate partners. Companies like Microsoft, American Red Cross, and Adobe. This University
3: of Phoenix TV ad from 2012 caught the eye of a lot of students looking to earn a degree and land a job with one of the many companies shown on screen. It also caught the eye of the Federal Trade Commission, which dropped a lawsuit on the university for deceptive advertising, which it settled for $191 million back in 2019. Lawyer and prominent critic of for-profit colleges David Halperin says this is just one in a list of fraudulent practices that he believes the University of Phoenix has engaged in for some time.
4: In 2015, the University of Phoenix got in trouble and were kicked off military bases because they were engaged in improper recruiting of active-duty military service members. Um, And they eventually uh, lobbied, hired some high-priced lobbyists to get that uh, removed. But nevertheless, the violations occurred. So the University of Phoenix then promised to the FTC that they would not continue to run misleading ads. And yet right now, they're running another deceptive ad campaign with ads that falsely suggest that they are a, already a state-run institution as opposed to a for-profit college. The FTC has received over 6,000 consumer repla- complaints uh, from students in the past six years saying that the University of Phoenix is, uh, has engaged in deceptive practices.
3: Last month, Halperin, along with a group of other concerned organizations, pinned a letter to the University of Arkansas System Board of Trustees urging them to halt a deal to purchase the University of Phoenix.
5: Somebody close to the deal on our end had leaked some information to a, a reporter here in Little Rock and they began asking some questions about it. So we were kind of forced to talk about this a little bit before much is really done and and completed in writing or anything like that. You know, it wasn't something that we made a big announcement on or something that we're trying to be coy with or anything. It's just that we're in the middle of some negotiations. So
3: That's Nate Hinkle, a spokesperson for the University of Arkansas system. He's referring to an article published in late January by the Arkansas Times, which first reported that the UA system was interested in buying the online university. Hinkle says the UA system is in talks on a deal with the University of Phoenix. Well, sort of. Here's Michael Moore, vice president of academic affairs with the UA system.
5: The University of Arkansas is not doing anything uh, to purchase zero public dollars, zero um, uh, funds from the University of Arkansas system. The University of Phoenix is being acquired by a nonprofit uh, that will have an affiliation arrangement with it, and the nonprofit will bear all of the financial risks.
3: In August of twenty twenty two, the Transformative Education Services Incorporated or TESS registered with the Arkansas Secretary of State's office as a nonprofit. In the filing, TESS is listed as a quote, public benefit corporation, and all of its assets from whatever source derived shall be used exclusively for charitable educational purposes. And that, Moore says, is who would be buying the University of Phoenix if a deal goes through.
5: Tess will acquire 100% if the deal goes through of the University of Phoenix. And there would be no lingering uh, OPM relationship with the prior ownership group.
3: He says the University of Phoenix would be affiliated with the University of Arkansas system, but not operate beneath it the way that schools like the University of Arkansas, UALR, UA Monticello, or others do. And he says no public funds would be used to purchase the University of Phoenix. Tests through loans and private funding would buy and own the university outright. Where he says the University of Arkansas system would come in is primarily through an affiliation and licensing agreement.
5: Whereby the University of Phoenix will, um, test rather, will be able to use, um, if they want to, in some of their branding efforts, uh, the University of Arkansas system name. Uh, And It also spells out some areas of cooperation between the two entities. They won't be using any of the images for our current schools, so there's no use of the Razorback. There's no use of the University of Arkansas. The licensing agreement is with the University of Arkansas system, not the University of Arkansas.
3: Moore declined to comment on the specific amount of the buyout, but reporting from Deborah Hale Shelton of the Arkansas Times puts the estimated cost anywhere from 500 to $700 million. But Moore did say the potential partnership would be a significant source of income for the UA system.
5: Uh, again, while this is still somewhat under negotiations, we anticipate that on an annual basis, uh, the UA system would receive approximately $20 million.
3: Moore says another benefit of the affiliation would be an exchange of technology, specifically around marketing and recruitment.
5: They have a marketing engine that is is massive and unheard of in the area of higher education. And we have some programs that they don't. So imagine being able to leverage that uh, marketing engine to bolster the efforts of some of our programs and bring attention um, outside the state of Arkansas uh, to programs that right now don't get much exposure outside the state of Arkansas.
3: But Della Justice, Vice President of Legal Affairs for Veterans Education Success, a research and public policy institute, says that same marketing is exactly what landed the University of Phoenix in hot water.
6: And there's lots of allegations over the years about... Uh, the um, sort of misrepresenting to prospective students and to veterans about the likelihood of outcomes.
3: Justice also signed the letter sent to the Board of Trustees in February, and she says while she is wary of the UA system developing an affiliation with the University of Phoenix, she does believe there are ways that the acquisition could result in a more legitimate institution.
6: We really would want the University of Arkansas system to make sure it has removed any incentives for any deceptive practices, and that it puts in place those types of protections to make sure that any school affiliated with it uh, is actually delivering a quality education to the students who attend, and that the students understand uh, what school they are attending, and that they are not under some sort of misimpression. You know, we don't want school students to think, "Oh, I'm going to the University of Arkansas," but actually, they're getting. Uh, you know, a, a low-quality education, nobody's looking out for their their well-being and making sure they get what they were promised, and they're just seen as a moneymaker. That would be a terrible outcome.
3: And Moore says while the University of Phoenix will retain its name and basic model, the most important change would be its move from a for-profit to a non-profit university.
5: Uh, the biggest difference is that the non-profit uh, would retain the money. They don't have to satisfy shareholders. So any money that is made by the university would be pumped back into the university for things like curriculum development, ensuring student graduation or retention rates. So it just it, there's just a fundamental difference in the motivation uh, behind the way a for-profit and a not-for-profit university operate.
3: But Barmak Nasirian, an education policy analyst with Veterans Education Success, says it's unlikely that the buyout
7: will result in any significant change to the University of Phoenix. Well, let's put it this way. Certainly that is possible, but it is important to understand that uh, doing that uh, would be so costly as to completely nullify whatever net revenues they're banking on. In other words, the game here is to produce a subpar product as cheaply as possible to over-advertise and just recruit anybody with a pulse and eligibility for federal loans and to rip them off. This is the business model. So can that business model be, be rescued and rehabilitated and turned into a legitimate product? Yes. But guess what? When you do that, you'll find out that you will actually end up losing money on every deal instead of making money on every deal.
3: Nasirian says this isn't the first time a for-profit university has been bought out by another university. In fact, the UA system bought for-profit Grantham University in 2021, becoming the fully online University
7: of Arkansas Grantham. We've seen this with um, uh, the acquisition of uh, Kaplan by, uh, of all places, Purdue University. We saw that with the acquisition of uh, Ashford University, against whom there was a fraud judgment in California by none other than the University of Arizona. You know, when the asset becomes totally toxic in its own name, the most uh, optimal way out would be to find somebody with an unsullied brand to slap their name on it.
3: But Moore says the specifics of this acquisition are different. He says the affiliation agreement would not put the UA system or any of its institutions, or more importantly, the Arkansas taxpayer, at risk. But David Halperin disagrees.
4: The nonprofit itself isn't producing any revenue. The money, the the resources are going to have to come from somewhere. And it sounds like Stevens, uh, you know, the the investment company, is arranging the financing, but the state's going to have to pay it back. There also are thousands of students that have filed with the Department of Education claims saying they've been wronged by their schools and deceived by their schools and want um, to have their loans forgiven. And the Department of Education, in those circumstances, has the authority to go back to a school and say, uh, we, we want to recoup that money. So I think another thing to look at closely is whether the state or the nonprofit associated with the state is going to be required by the Department of Education or by the agreement with Apollo, uh, the the owner of the University of Phoenix now, uh, to take on that liability. Because there's another way that taxpayers could be on the hook for what happens. But, But in all of it, what you've got is a school that's engaged in bad practices, that has liability from the past, and that if it keeps on doing what it's doing, Having the same recruiters read the same scripts and run the same kind of advertising is going to risk further liability. It's not going to help the students of the state. It's not going to help the taxpayers of the state.
3: Halperin says his biggest concern is that he believes the UA system sees this deal as a purely financial arrangement. But Moore says the deal is just practical. Universities are facing a tough time financially. According to a report from National Student Clearinghouse, Arkansas saw 14% drop in undergraduate enrollment from 2019 to 2022 and are facing a decline in coming years.
5: You know, higher ed on the national landscape is entering a period that's called the enrollment cliff where there are just fewer and fewer students going to college. And state legislatures across the nation are also, you know, tightening their belts a little bit and not providing um, increases to higher education. So it's incumbent upon us at the UA system to look for future revenue sources that can help continue to ensure uh, the success and vibrancy of our existing campuses. So this—that's um, one of our primary motivations behind this—is that we believe this arrangement. Will provide a new revenue stream for the University of Arkansas system that will help secure and help our existing campuses well into the future.
3: But Della Justice says that potential could be undercut by what she sees as an institution that preys on vulnerable students like single parents, minorities, and veterans.
6: I do think, though, you know, they should be very wise as they go into this deal just to make, you know, to make sure that they understand the scope of their risk um, and they understand the potential, you know, for hurting the whole University of Arkansas system's reputation if they are unable to deliver the kinds of education that that, that is required.
3: A spokesperson from the University of Phoenix declined to an interview for this report. But in an email statement said, quote, we look forward to our continued conversation with the University of Arkansas system and what bringing University of Phoenix formally into the UA ecosystem could mean for our students, their students, and the future of higher education, End quote. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Daniel Carruth. Ahead on our show, time, physics, and the universe
8: who we are and where we are, sometimes quite literally where we are with something like GPS. But, you know, they're, they're part of trying to figure out the world we're immersed in. And that's extraordinary. And, and it's not only cold mathematics or, or, or scintillating fancy equipment. I think there's a sense of wonder, of mystery, of wanting to know more. We have, we're not done. we got more questions to ask. Recently, David Kaiser, professor of physics at MIT and author, was on the University
1: of Arkansas campus to deliver the inaugural lecture in a new endowed series of talks, about the history of science. He also came by the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio. Our conversation later this hour.
3: Alan Mantooth is a professor of electrical engineering at the University of Arkansas and is an international leader in researching and using silicon carbide as a powerful and versatile semiconductor. He says the U of A is uniquely positioned as a
5: leader in the
3: semiconductor economy.
5: We're attempting to create a bridge in the manufacturing gap that exists in America. Right now we have a lot of expertise, probably the world's leading authorities uh, around the nation in this material system and the things that it can do for us in in our everyday lives. So we have bridged that gap by creating an open facility where university researchers, national laboratories, or even small and large businesses that don't have access to this capability can prototype their ideas in a cost-efficient manner. And then ramp it to high-volume manufacturing. Hear more in the latest edition of Short Talks from the Hill at KUAF.com,
3: ArkansasResearch.UARC.edu, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Okay, Matthew, we're at that point of spring break where the schedule begins to pick up again. Mm -hmm. You know, some people have been at the beach and now they're back. Mm -hmm. You and I haven't gone
0: anywhere. I have not been to the beach. I have
1: not either. (laughs) Uh, But there are a few things happening over the next 24 hours. Not the least of which is a basketball game.
0: Yes. Yeah, we're going to see the Arkansas Razorbacks tomorrow. Play UConn. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's in Las Vegas, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I don't. I don't remember what time the game. Six fifteen central. Okay, and that's going to be on CBS? CBS.
1: Yes. So you don't have to go looking for True TV or <laughs> whatever that exists. Um, and there is a Razorback watch party at the Bakery District, uh, presented by the Fort Smith International Film Festival. That takes place well during game time. It's yes. a watch party after all. Also in Fort Smith tomorrow. Anita Paddock will be at the Fort Smith Museum of History talking about her latest book, The Killing Spree. Mm-hmm. It's another one of her true crime stories that happened in western Arkansas. I've read everything she's written. She's a wonderful person, a wonderful writer. She writes about true crime, and she's just the nicest person. Isn't that how that works Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and she's a very good writer, very good researcher. She'll be at the museum talking about the book and signing the book at 5.30. So you could get to the museum at 5.30, then go mm-hmm. to the bakery district and have plenty of time to see tip-off. That's right. Also tomorrow national puppy day. That is
0: great. That, so this is different than national dog day. Oh my God. There's right? national rescue
1: dog day. There's national <laughs> pet day. There's national dog day. There's... So I just let Daisy do whatever she wants <laughs> As every day. As yes. you should. KUAF is
9: supported by Butterfield Trail Village, a premier Northwest Arkansas retirement community catering to active lifestyles and resident well-being. Offering daily activities, a variety of living options, plus wellness amenities, including an aquatic center and fitness facilities. ButterfieldTrailVillage.org for more. The Momentary in Bentonville presents three-time Grammy Award-winning hip-hop group The Roots, live and in-person outdoors on the Momentary Green, April 29th. The band has been hailed by Rolling Stone as one of the greatest live acts in the world. Tickets on sale now at TheMomentary.org. This is Ozarks at
0: Large. I'm Kyle Kellams. I'm Matthew Moore. A new study suggests that Arkansas's public school system has seen a rise in teacher turnover during the COVID-19 pandemic. The Arkansas Democrat Gazette reports researchers at the University of Arkansas conducted the study. Researchers say the typical teacher retention rate of almost 80% prior to the pandemic dropped to around 77% in 2021 and to around 74% in the current school year. Teachers surveyed in the study reported feeling stressed and considered changing jobs. The study also revealed that the teacher turnover rate varied across the state with South and East Arkansas seeing higher turnover than the North and West parts of the state. Talk Business
1: and Politics reports Arkansas's 2% tourism tax set a new record in 2022. The state's 2% tourism tax revenue in 22 was just more than $24 million. That's up 17% compared with the $20.5 million in 2021. Revenue set a new monthly record in June of $2.5 million with collections for each month, topping $1 million for the first time. More details can be found at talkbusiness.net.
0: U.S. District Judge Timothy Brooks is ruling a federal lawsuit brought by ACLU Arkansas on behalf of five Washington County jail detainees who allege being treated without knowledge or consent for COVID-19 with ivermectin will proceed. The lawsuit, filed in January 2022, names the Washington
1: County Detention Center, then County Sheriff Tim Helder, and contract jail physician Robert Karras as defendants. Gary Sullivan, the legal director for ACLU Arkansas, says the suit comes after questions were raised about the patient's care.
6: And when we investigated this, we found there were several detainees at that time who had been given a number of pills and were told that they were steroids and vitamins that would make them feel better. Um, We later learned that they were actually given ivermectin, which is a cattle dewormer. Um, so once we started probing further, we uh, got their medical records and found out they were not only given ivermectin, but they were giving it, given it in high dosage, dosages much higher than the um, approved uh, FDA approved dosage for humans. Those defendants had filed a motion for judgment on the pleadings, and that's basically them asking the judge to dismiss, claiming that we did not state the proper facts in our complaint or amended complaint to go forward on any claim.
1: The FDA warns high doses of ivermectin available over-the-counter and by prescription to treat parasites in large farm animals and people can cause seizures, comas, and even death in humans. The drug is not approved to treat
0: COVID-19. The lawsuit cites that Karras began to secretly administer ivermectin as part of an experiment in late 2020. The treatment was disclosed the following summer at County Quorum Court meeting where then-Sheriff Tim Helder publicly stated his approval. Sullivan says the defendants have repeatedly asked the court for dismissal. Sullivan says the defendants claim qualified immunity as well as statutory immunity from ACLU's lawsuit. Judge Brooks, Sullivan says, denied all defenses and that the plaintiffs had stated sufficient facts for each claim to go forward. The case was filed and will proceed in the U.S. District Court for the Western District of Arkansas.
1: A new report from United for Medical Research concludes grants from the National Institutes for Health supported more than 2,000 jobs in Arkansas and generated more than $281 million in economic activity. The report counts 159 active NIH grants in Arkansas last year, representing a total of $104 million in grant money. That same study Reports nationally, research funding from the NIH last year supported more than 568,000 jobs and generated nearly $97 billion in new economic activity. The report finds that that is $2.65 of economic activity for every $1 of research funding.
5: Henrietta
2: Mann.
0: Oklahoma native Henrietta Mann received her 2021 National Humanities Medal from President Biden yesterday at the White House. The medal ceremony had been delayed because of the pandemic. National Humanities Medal recipients are selected for their work that enlarges understanding of the past and giving voice to the communities and histories often overlooked.
4: For dedicating her life to strengthening
10: and developing Native American education, the pioneering, pioneering efforts of Henrietta ho Oana-ah, man, led to programs and institutions across the country devoted to the study of Native American
1: history and culture, honoring ancestors that came before and benefiting generations that follow. Henrietta Mann is a full-blood Cheyenne, an elder of her people, and a citizen of the Cheyenne-Arapaho tribes of Oklahoma. She has taught at the junior high, high school, and college levels, including teaching at Cal Berkeley and the University of Montana. During sabbaticals, she helped develop Native American studies at various schools.
0: Others receiving their 2021 Medal of Humanities yesterday included novelist Colson Whitehead, who recently spoke on the University of Arkansas-Fort Smith campus, and Brian Stevenson, author of the book Just Mercy, who was a guest at the University of Arkansas and the Fayetteville Public Library a few years ago and is a driving force behind the Legacy Museum and the National Memorial for Peace and Justice. Speaking of award winners, Sanctuary City, from Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright Martina
1: Myoke continues its run at Theater Square in Fayetteville. The play, about a pair of teenagers born in other countries and their desire to remain in the United States, runs through April 9th. Ana Miramontes, who plays G in Sanctuary City, says cast and crew work to get to know each other before working on the script.
10: It's a very intense play that deals with a lot of very serious stuff. And I feel that our director from the beginning, before we even started uh, rehearsals, we just got together, got a beer. And we he was really uh, interested in creating the environment, like a safe environment, so that we could tackle this play because... As I mentioned, it has very intense topics.
0: Sanctuary City opened off-Broadway in New York in September of 2021. Brennan Irby, who plays B, says the play can make an impact beyond its 100 minutes on stage. You know, as long as we're starting a conversation,
4: and, and I think that's important here, as well as a lot of places, but especially especially, especially here, here where yeah. it's not where it's not every day that you consume a story like this. And and hopefully it can be an accessible night at the theater
0: to to get something a little different.
1: We'll hear more from the actors on an upcoming edition of Ozarks at Large.
0: The Black Ownership Bus Tour will be in the region for several days later this month. Sponsored by Remix Ideas, the bus tour will visit a variety of Black-owned businesses and shop locally. Plus, learn about the history of each business and the importance of supporting Black-owned businesses. The tour will be in Fayetteville Monday, Springdale on Tuesday, Rogers and Bentonville on Wednesday, and in Fort Smith on Thursday. And the Razorback baseball
1: team heads to a weekend series with LSU and Baton Rouge after yesterday's 12-2 win over Southeastern Missouri yesterday at Baumwalker Stadium. The Razorbacks conclude their 18-game homestand. That's the program's longest since 1992 with a 17-1 record. This month, the University of Arkansas inaugurated the Palmer-Hotts Endowed Lecture Series in the History of Science. David Kaiser, a professor of the history of science and professor of physics at Massachusetts Institute of Technology, delivered that first talk. He discussed the early discussions of incorporating Einstein's theory of relativity into the creation of GPS. A tricky maneuver, since those clocks are in space and the clocks in the receiving station's on Earth or on the ground, and a stronger gravitational potential. During his visit to the University of Arkansas, David Kaiser also came to the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio. I asked him about his subject for the lecture, about his book, How the Hippies Say Physics, and about recent discoveries in physics.
8: You know, the physics community, over the last, especially over the last 100 years or so, roughly a century, has had to grapple with a, a number of ways in which time has become more counterintuitive or had features that we hadn't really, as a community, hadn't expected earlier. Uh, and it can change in all kinds of ways. It can respond, um, if I'm watching a different person zoom past me at a high speed, I'm gonna measure her clocks at a dif- different rate than I measure my own clock that's sitting right next to me. That's one kind of strange feature of the, of the flow of time. And uh, it becomes, I think, even more strange, uh, like you mentioned, if we're adding in um, large masses, gravitation into, into the equation as well, uh, then even if uh, if I see a, a colleague sitting still uh, in a different gravitational field, I'm going to watch her clock at tick at a different rate than my own does as well. Even if we're both at rest with respect to each other, so if we're rotating, if I see her spinning around, you know, like on a merry-go-round, I'm going to see her clock read differently than than mine would, and so. There's a lot of these ways in which time became, frankly, more juicy, became a lot more curious uh, than the very commonsensical uh, kind of Newtonian starting point.
1: All right. And maybe when we think time, a lot of us think minutes, hours, seconds. Time can also be thought of in a different way or in a slightly
8: bigger way. Well – we we've learned to think about uh, longer durations of time okay. and shorter, and so at the cutting edge now uh, we have colleagues who can make accurate clocks that can reliably measure a trillionth of a second. It's called a picosecond. That's kind of mind-boggling, actually, to really reliably and to and to not drift to to be as accurate three days from now as it was today, measuring uh, the ticking of a clock to to a, to a you know twelve decimal places. That's pretty great. And on the other end of the extreme, uh, in areas like cosmology, think about the evolution of our entire universe since the time of the Big Bang, now we're talking about billions of years. And so the units that you mentioned are enormously helpful for us moving around town, leading our lives, years, decades. We we know how to carve up time in, in, in human-scaled chunks. Uh, and yet when we encounter either the world of atoms and parts of atoms, like quantum theory, uh, or the, the sort of in, enormous universe, you know, swirling black holes, the stretching of space-time since the Big Bang. Then we have to get more clever with how we try to, to measure the, the relevant uh, passage of time.
1: What do we have to consider if we're trying to connect something that is in space— with something that is on the ground. Does, yeah. it, does it matter then?
8: It the, matters, and, and it's it's remarkably that how much it can matter, because these effects on the one hand seem very subtle. I, mean, I just mentioned trillionths of a second. How could that matter to an everyday life? Uh, it turns out what's connecting these things is the speed of light, which is actually really fast in human terms. It's around 300,000 kilometers per second, or 186,000 miles per hour, or something like that. Really fast, right? And so suddenly, if you're off by a little bit in, in what my clock says compared to what my friend's clock says, and we're communicating by trading light signals back and forth, could be radio waves, anything that's going to travel at the speed of light, then being off just a little bit in my clock time versus your clock time could translate into a huge difference in where I think you are or where you're going to tell me I am. So when we start relating durations of time to things like where are, how do we map uh, locations, things like GPS... Then suddenly the timing becomes really, really important, and these effects that we can rightly overlook most of the time they start to matter. So, as in your example, even satellites that are nearby, let alone you know Pluto uh, or, or or you know um, Alpha Centauri, just in in orbit around our own Earth. Satellites feel a, a weaker gravitational pull from the Earth than we do. Of course. Right? We're close to the sense. center, right. right? And so that means the gravitational effect on clocks is stronger for us than for those satellites, even though they're kind of nearby. Measurably different. And that can lead to an offset of uh, something like, uh, oh, probably, I ran these numbers before, I think hundreds of billionths of a second, so hundreds of nanoseconds. It's not a lot if I blink my eye, but it's a lot if I'm worrying about, you know, sending light signals and figuring out where I am. So one effect that matters is they feel, they, the satellites, feel a weaker tug of gravity than we do. That means their clocks are less slowed down by the tug of gravity than ours are just sitting still on Earth. That's one. Number two, those satellites could be moving really fast compared to us. We're sitting on the spinning Earth. We have some motion, but they're zipping by even faster, say like astronauts on the space station. They can complete a full loop around the Earth in something like 90 minutes and takes us a whole day, right? So they're moving really fast compared to us. Well, that has a different kind of effect on the satellite clocks than on our clocks. When we watch a fast-moving object zoom past us, we see their clocks run more slowly than ours. So now we actually already have two competing effects, both of which are very subtle, they're just very tiny quantitatively, and they pull in opposite directions. The satellites feel weaker gravity than we do, but they're moving faster compared to us, and you have to be really careful to keep each of those kinds of contributions uh, in sight.
1: What is the equation? I would imagine it's a question: What does the work look like to sync up a
8: satellite clock with a receiving clock? It takes a lot, and so to do it, let me let me back up and say the ideas now are actually pretty straightforward, and they're in undergraduate textbooks in in physics. It's, we can explain the gist of it actually pretty well. We couldn't always; it took a mm-hmm. while to clarify, but sort of current generation textbooks can treat this for really undergraduate students with with uh, in quantitative detail. So, so it's complicated, but not. It, it's not so advanced that no one could even hope to follow it. That's to get the ideas right. I, I, much of my time I, I work as a theoretical physicist, the ideas are what's going to matter to me. Thankfully, I'm not an engineer because then the details really matter. Right. And so part of what the, the large community had to struggle with was to really get it right and not just figure out, oh, this will have a different effect than that. I have a minus sign. OK, we can get that straight on our scratch pads. But to really have it work and have something like the GPS, the global positioning system, um, be accurate within one meter on the ground, that means we really have to have exquisite control over not just the clock rates, but how are the radio beams affected when they travel from space through the Earth's atmosphere. That makes a little bit measurable delay. There's a lot of actually really important engineering that goes into making that work as well.
1: One of your missions is talking to people like me. Most of us are not theoretical physicists, but it seems that you enjoy writing for and talking to people who... Don't live in the world of
8: theoretical physics. I do. No, I, I love it. First of all, I, I think it's it, it's fun to do, and it's a great opportunity to talk with lots of folks who have other interesting things that I don't know about, and so it's it's great to have an opportunity to start conversations, you know, more generally. Um, so that's a treat for me. More selfishly, I have to say, so it's not it's not only about you know um, even more selfishly for me, I find it really helpful if I've given some very hard thought to a complicated uh, physics. Thing I'm trying to calculate, say, some esoteric thing. It's really fun, but it's hard. And, and often, the mathematics is, is our, often our surest guide. And I can talk with my exquisitely you know, uh, uh, smart, hardworking students, with my colleagues. The language of mathematics is going to help us avoid some misunderstandings. It might lead to others. Okay, That's not going to work if I want to then talk with other folks who aren't or immersed in the same stuff. So for me, I actually find it, to this day, really helpful, again, just selfishly, to force myself to try to put into words, into stories, into a human-scaled uh, narrative, uh, what I think is capturing the gist, which otherwise might look so pristine, but a little, a little in a different mode. If if I'm staring at my at the equations that I that I love so much, do you think it's important for people like me to know more about physics to
1: understand more?
8: I think so. Again, let me let me turn it around and say it's important for people like us, like like me and my colleagues in the scientific community. To this day, most of what we get to do, we have the great privilege to do, is supported one way or another with public funds. So if I'm not going to tell you, know, you and the, the, the plural you, all of us, how we're trying to do very careful work with you know, taxpayer dollars – I, I think we owe that. So, so again, I turn it around, say, I, we should be doing that anyway. Is it valuable for the folks we're trying to talk with? I'd like to think so. I mean, part of what what the stories about Einstein and relativity or quantum theory, these these amazing, these are extraordinary human accomplishments. Um uh, and and that's not to say I don't we don't have to make a, a rank order list this is better or worse than Shakespeare's sonnets, but they I put them in a similar category, right? Or the most amazing movie or whatever, you know, artistic expression. They help us try to understand who we are and where we are, sometimes quite literally where we are with something like GPS. But you know, they're they're part of trying to figure out the world we're immersed in. And that's extraordinary. and and it's not only cold mathematics or 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 scintillating fancy equipment. I think there's a sense of wonder, of mystery, of wanting to know more. We have we're not done. We got more questions to ask. So I love talking with younger people because, you know, they're going to learn much more than 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 many of us are ever going to hope to. I think there's a lot of reasons to try to be really, proactive in, in getting folks to have the chance to hear about the, the things we otherwise have the great privilege to, to work on most of the time I'm also fascinated
1: about the history of physics and discovery you wrote the book how the hippies saved physics and it's it makes sense once I started thinking about the counterculture mm-hmm. thinking about things differently not just shut up and calculate right. what was the inspiration for writing that book
8: well it, I I, um, I really had a great time that writing that book was frankly was just a joy ride it really was um, Partly for, for exactly the reasons you say, it was it was I was writing about a group of people, I'd say roughly eight to ten were the kind of core group that I was trying to kind of understand and follow. And they were broad-minded, curious people, very smart. Most of them had PhDs in physics from very, very fancy elite programs. They had done their homework, they had published in the in the scientific literature. And they also were open to a, let's say, a wider range of questions than maybe it was typical. And they were wrong much more often than they were right, but so was Albert Einstein. And That's okay. I, so was Richard Feynman. I certainly am, uh, to put it mildly. And so the fact that they got a bunch of stuff wrong, that's not, that doesn't disqualify them of being of interest, to, at least to me, but they were really um, curious and often a bit playful. They didn't always take themselves too seriously. They were open to questions that others might have thought that's not even a question. They, they would sit with them. And with the benefit of hindsight, many decades later from the activities that I was uh, trying to write about. We can see some, some real benefits to the broader community from that kind of open-ended, curiosity-driven set of, of basically kind of jam sessions, for lack of a better word, or brainstorming. That again, their specific proposed answers often didn't pan out. Uh, some did, but not all of them did. But they were catalysts, they were prods to a slightly larger community who would take them up and say, well, here's why I don't think that idea will work. And in that process, the entire community learned actually a lot of really foundational things.
1: Imagine theoretical physics is so exciting because you might, over the course of a career, career get an answer to a question you didn't even know existed.
8: Yes. I, I love that about it. And and I've had some moments where, you know, the hairs stand up on the back of my neck. Not on my head because they're all gone. <laughs> but on the back of my neck, they stand up. Um, there's, and it's even longer than that. This is where I, I, part of why I, I love uh, working on the history science as well. Some of these questions were posed generations before I was born, right? Or, or let alone my students were so we can we can trace out a kind of intergenerational baton pass right here's we think this is curious and weird this question we can't we're grappling with we don't have all the answers it's it's like a handoff to generations right and i find that really um inspiring when the universe expands what's it expanding
1: to it's hard for some of us to think about that of like it is. if you put water in
8: a glass it's there it can't go anywhere else yes it's not it's not a silly question. It's a hard one. And honestly, it's an example where the mathematics seems so straightforward to those for whom that's straightforward. right. right. Uh, and yet, well, even when we, even when my colleagues and I try to put that in words or pictures, there are always metaphors which are partial, right? No No metaphor is going to capture everything we wanted to convey. And so this metaphor helps with this part of it, but actually it's, it distorts this other part. And so the best I can think of it is that space itself is stretching. More space is, is sort of coming into being between Andromeda and um, the Milky Way. So it's not that that my bathtub has to get uh, uh, has to stretch into a pre-existing space. The space between the rubber ducky and his neighbor has expanded. And that is self-consistent, mathematically mm-hmm. certainly, without having to say there was a larger container into which space is expanding. Easy for me to say, I can wave my hands. Um, that's 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 an example where i think it's more straightforward to try to to quantify that with our actually quite pristine mathematics draw me a picture oh it gets harder already
1: can you watch a movie like interstellar or planet of the apes and and not think, mm, that
8: they didn't get that right? Uh, well, first of all, Interstellar, as you may know, is a great example because actually a, a dear colleague of many of ours uh, was very much involved in that. Kip Thorne, who um, uh, went on to win the Nobel Prize in Physics, uh, was already extraordinarily accomplished uh, even a few years earlier when, the, when he was working the film. So, so that's an example where this was, this was built from the ground up to try to imagine with the full power of modern cinema very esoteric, esoteric ideas about the warping of space-time. They were working super hard to get it right, so to speak, uh, and even wrote scientific papers on the visualizations they, they worked on for the movie. So that's that's an example. That's extreme. I wish we could do that more, but that's right. pretty extreme. Um, so, no, I, instead what happens is, as I'm sure my wife would, would call in to tell you, <laughs> it's not that I can't watch it, It's that I have to watch with a remote in my hand to pause and say, well, actually, you know, my friend works on that. and he, Oh, isn't that cool? It, which is not so much fun for other people who are watching, I've been told. Uh, the feedback I get is just let's watch the movie. <laughs> um, so I think, you know, a lot of what we have to do in an area like theoretical physics is just be open to curious ideas and novels and science fiction and movies I mean, who cares if they sort of got it right? Is that going to trigger some new idea I hadn't even thought about before? That's going to be value in physics.
1: David Kaiser, thank you so much for coming to the university. Thank you com- for coming to KUAF. Thank you
8: so much. It was a real treat. Thank you. David Kaiser
1: is a professor of the history of science and professor of physics at MIT, and he delivered the inaugural Palmer Hots Endowed Lecture Series in the History of Science at the University of Arkansas earlier this month. He is the author of several books, including How the Hippies Saved Physics and his latest, Quantum Legacies, Dispatches from an Uncertain World, which was honored among the best books of the year by Physics Today and Physics World. His talk was supported by the UA Honors College. Walton Arts Center's 10x10 Arts Series presents
9: La Dama, Thursday, March 30th at 7 p.m. La Dama brings together four Latin American women who blend traditional music from Venezuela, Brazil, and Colombia with elements of soul, R&B, and pop, performed in Spanish, English, and Portuguese. WaltonArtsCenter.org or 443-5600 for tickets.
0: Tomorrow on Ozark's proposed bills to ban sales of Delta-8 and strictly regulate hemp CBD manufacturing and sales are advancing in the Arkansas legislature.
6: Small players like myself who have been following the rules and playing the game according to the state are, are now going to be under a different
0: control and um, I'm being dragged into something that's going to make it difficult for a small farmer. That story and more tomorrow at noon and at 7 on 91.3 KUAF. And you can find stories and full episodes of the show at OzarksAtLarge.com. On the latest episode of Undisciplined, we explore the Black Diaspora through the lens of Rice.
2: Jamaica is a British classist society, and food is one of the ways in which class is expressed. So if you didn't have rice, something was happening to you.
0: The third installment of our Undisciplined Live series is in the podcast feed now. Listen for free wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: This month, Resilient Black Women, a podcast produced in conjunction with KUAF, is releasing a new episode every Friday to place a focus on black women's health. A recent episode included a conversation with Dr. Gabby, a U.K.-based gynecologist, on a mission to save black women's wombs in regards to diseases that disproportionately affect black women. Co-hosts Joy McGowan and Denisha Simpson asked Dr. Gabby about her work, her
6: inspiration, and more. Since we are resilient Black women, we wanted to know what does it mean to you to be Black, female, and resilient? If you could just kind of summarize that in your own words.
10: Yeah, to be Black, female, and resilient, it has been a journey. And I think one of the first steps in that journey is just recognizing some of the facts that are out there and being aware that as a Black woman, um, there are statistics, wow. um, facts that have been researched that have shown that, you know, many different things are more difficult for us, whether it be in the workplace, whether it be in terms of, um, you know, financial projections, whether it be, um, you know, um, to do with our health care and advocating for ourselves and our families, whether it be stress levels. Um, you know there are many different things at play in society that affect black women differently to women um, of other colors we do we're not afforded the same privileges Um, so when I was able to recognize that in the world that actually empowered me because it meant that I wasn't um necessarily surprised and by not being surprised I was able to be prepared and I was able to focus on my strategy um, without feeling like a helpless victim um, and I think that really empowered me just knowing that this is the fact this is what we're dealing with therefore I have a choice either to fight and um, figure out how the games played and um, or do nothing? So I hope that answer was 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 helpful. I think also um, one thing that I realised that was important was to have really clear boundaries in my life, um, making sure that people don't cross those boundaries and communicating those boundaries very clearly to people. Um, and also getting advice from other Black women because no matter what situation we find ourselves in, there will definitely be somebody else who's been through it and who knows how to navigate that field. And there's no point in me trying to figure it out when I can speak to somebody who can tell me, do X, Y, and Z, they there, done that, got the T-shirt, you will, you'll be okay. So <laughs> there's strength in our community for sure.
2: Yeah, Dr. Gabby, those are things that we often kind of talk about. I love how you were kind of saying that, like, just the knowledge of knowing the ways that Black women are uh, disproportionately affected by adverse things in our society that knowledge helped you feel more empowered to know what was the next thing to do, what was the best thing, what would be the best thing for you to do. That knowledge mm-hmm. helped you to like advocate more for yourself. And that is part of the thing that makes you resilient. And then from that knowledge, you build your boundaries, you recognize like, how do I communicate those boundaries? And then you you lean in deep to the Black women or community that's around you. Is that kind of sums up what you were saying?
10: Yeah, that's a perfect summary. Although it didn't necessarily go that smoothly, but I figured yeah. it out over time.
2: <laughs> right, because that's, and I love that error. it started off as a journey. It's, it's, yeah. it's ongoing, probably, in some ways.
10: Definitely, like there's still loads of aspects of, you know, life as a Black woman that I haven't experienced yet.
9: Mm-hmm. But I'm definitely
10: mm-hmm. glad that over the years, I've been able to build up my social network and my... um relationships with others um, so that I feel like I have the the right support there when I need it in the future. Yeah.
2: To our listeners I, I hope that we're all kind of catching what Dr. Gabby is saying because for her to be resilient Black and female is not about being alone it's not about being the strong Black woman all by herself it's about being connected and having clear boundaries And having knowledge about what do I need, what am I lacking, and how do I get to where I want to go.
10: Yeah, you're definitely right. And there is so much support out there Mm. for people. It can take a little bit of work to find it. Um, But even for people who don't have necessarily that social network within their community, there are so many support groups out there. The internet is amazing. Facebook is actually amazing. Like there's so many fantastic Facebook groups that have helped so many women. Mm. Um, and I would just encourage people to, to really look in that, that kind of wider network. If there isn't anyone in their local community who can help them with that particular issue. Yeah, I love that.
2: So to that, tell us about, I imagine that like your practice, your professional practice maybe flows from like a personal passion. So tell us a little bit about that, your passion and your professional practice.
10: Yeah, so I actually went to medical school because I wanted to help women have babies. That was the reason why I went. So I did some work experience on the labor um, delivery suites. And I was like, this is it. This is what I'm going to do. Um, but as things passed I didn't end up doing OBGYN training but then as working as a family uh, medicine specialist I just kept feeling that desire that I wanted to help women and in particular that I wanted to help black women and um, I have another degree in in endocrinology and hormones and I would do lots of talks about lifestyle medicine and improving your health and preventive medicine But I just kept finding that black women kept asking me about their health and about their gynecology health. And I kept getting invited to different talks. And then I thought, "Hmm, I must really be good at this because I keep getting asked and I keep reading about this and sharing information, even when people don't want to hear it, because I feel like they need to have these jewels because it really can impact their health in a positive way. So that's how I've ended up on this mission to save black women's rooms because I've just heard the same story too many times from my patients, from family members, from friends, and it's not something that I think is acceptable. And that's when we're thinking about black women's reproductive health from teenage years all the way through to childbirth, all the way through to the menopause. There's a a pervasive problem where black women are disproportionately affected um, by the burden of gynecology disease.
0: You can hear the entire episode of Resilient Black Woman with guest Dr. Gabby right now. The podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts as well. That's KUAF.com. Sona, the Symphony of
9: Northwest Arkansas, continues its main stage season Saturday, April 8th at Walton Arts Center with Battle of the Bands. Sona teams up with the Fayetteville Jazz Collective to create a hybrid orchestra jazz band for an evening of genre-defying music featuring guest vocalist Janine Latrice Perez. Tickets and more at
0: sonamusic.org. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellums. Later in April, Kyle, we're going to have some uh, students who are a part of the Arkansas Scholastic Press Association. It's high school students all across the state of Arkansas who participate in their newspapers, their their TV stations, their yearbooks. And we're going to have some folks who are interested in podcasting, and they're going to come here to the radio station uh, April 20th and 21st. So we're going to have a batch of students here, and I get to give a little lecture talking about dissecting a podcast and the works of making audio journalism from uh, idea to execution talking about some of the work we've done here at kuAF some of the work I've done prior to coming to kuAF uh, it's gonna be it's gonna be really fun you know how many students that you'll be talking to I don't I but I imagine the Rick Stockdale conference room will be nice and full I'm looking forward to this and I'm looking forward to looking across out of
1: my office watching you teach
2: Yes it's gonna be a lot of fun I'm Maria Hinojosa. This week on Latino USA, Luis Moreno Ocampo, the deputy prosecutor in the trial of the Juntas, the story at the center of the Oscar-nominated film Argentina 1985. That's this week on Latino USA.
0: Latino USA, Sunday afternoon at 3, right here on KUAF. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville,
1: and Bethel Heights.
0: Contributors today included Daniel Carruth. Jacqueline Froelich supplied the information about the ivermectin lawsuit. Daniel Carruth, by the way, produces his stories inside the
1: Karen Taha News Studio. Matthew produced today's program in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. From the Carver Center for Public Radio, I'm Kyle Kellums. Matthew Moore.